Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. Member, FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. At Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry. But, but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories. Stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex of bugs. <laughs> Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers. And hopefully make you see the world anew. Radiolab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get your podcasts. Pushkin. Imagine there's a place in our world where the known things go. A corridor of the mind, lined with shelves, cluttered with clues, stocked with books. I haven't been here in a while. I was looking for my copy of Five Acres and Independence. It's got to be somewhere. Hmm. Glad to see my collection of 18th century almanacs is still here. Huh, mid-20th century political posters? Damn, it's getting dusty, though. Uh, the cupboard of board games? Weird, what's this stack of twigs doing here? Jeez, hello? Good afternoon, ma'am. Have you ever wished you owned the sum of human knowledge? The library that never closes. Oh, I already have a library. This is the library. This is the last archive. Didn't you see the big breast sign outside? I don't get it. What, what are you selling anyway? 29 volumes, 28,150 pages, 44 million words of text. When in doubt, look it up. Oh, okay. Really sorry, thanks, but... Seems so cruel, but... Mister, I've already got one. Right here. I've had it for a very long time. Step across the threshold. To my family's front door. In 1972. The day the encyclopedia arrived. I was six. Up till then... I'd experienced only a few exciting deliveries. Remember, there was no Amazon then. Not much got dropped off by truck. At least not at our house. Once we got a new refrigerator, a truck pulled up. Two guys rolled it off on a little rolling cart, wheeled it into our yellow kitchen. Mostly, I remember using the cardboard box that the fridge had come in to build a fort. That was pretty fantastic. But the encyclopedia was even better than the fridge. My mother unpacked the volumes from brown boxes and lined them up on a shelf in the living room. 
22 big, fat, important-looking, very serious books. That would look like leather binding, cream-colored, and gold-leaf-edged pages like a Bible, color photographs, maps. And the thrill didn't end there. Every year we'd get another shipment, updates. You were supposed to go back into the original volumes and insert new pages. Sometimes the updates came with stickers that you were supposed to place over the outdated information. My family didn't have a lot of books. That encyclopedia set really was the superstar of our family library. I loved everything about it. The smell, the fanciness, the way they lined up like a regiment of soldiers. All there, on a shelf in the living room, next to our stack of board games. Monopoly, Sorry, Clue. The encyclopedia? It was like this box with no bottom. Endless knowledge. Encyclopedias for decades were sold one by one, door to door. Knowledge doesn't often travel in quite that way anymore. Hand selling, a knock on the door. How did that start? How did it work? Why did it end? It seemed important to understanding how we gain access to knowledge today. So I asked a world-class expert, a wizard at the art of selling a walking library. And I would just knock on their door and I'd have the little card with me and I'd say, hi, this is Myron Taxman from Encyclopedia Britannica. You sent in for some information and I was in the area here, so I thought I'd stop by and show you what we have. Myron Taxman started selling encyclopedias in Chicago in the 1960s when he was 22. He's sold encyclopedias for nearly 30 years. He lives in Florida now. I bet a lot of ex-encyclopedia salesmen live there. But back in Chicago, in his heyday, Taxman loved his work. He adored it. Myron Taxman, he's like a character in a short story by John Updike or maybe Kurt Vonnegut. Except you cannot make this guy up. You know, if I had a call Sunday night, why not? So you go out for an hour and uh, make a sale. Taxman is so good at selling that after talking to him for a while, I should confess that I was pretty sure I'd buy just about anything from this guy. But you can't sell something you don't believe in. And he believed in encyclopedias. He believed in bringing the sum of human knowledge to American households, door by door by door. We would bring out what we call the giant broadside. Well, the giant broadside was a life-size picture of the whole full set of books. And you threw that out right in front of them, right under their feet, so they couldn't even move their feet. (laughs) I picture the giant broadside as a folded-up cardboard display, oh, the size of a dining room table, that Taxman would unfold like an accordion and lay out on the floor like a magic carpet. And then the real uh, coup d'etat was you brought out a nice leather-bound, (laughs) gold-filled sample of Britannica. And then you did a little presentation with that. You put it in their hands so they could hold it and play with it that feeling. It made my mouth water just hearing Taxman talk about it, the feeling of holding that sum of human knowledge in your hand, playing with it. I want that feeling back. Welcome to the third season of The Last Archive, the show about how we know what we know and why it seems lately as if we don't know anything at all. I'm Jill Lepore. The first season of The Last Archive was a whodunit, who killed truth. I went back over the last century to look at forces that undermined people's ability to get the facts and to get to the bottom of things. The second season uncovered the history of doubt, from rational skepticism to mindless conspiracy theories. I met frauds and hucksters and fakes, 
people peddling nonsense. So for two seasons, the first two years of the pandemic, mind you, I told a lot of stories about the origins of a lot of problems. That got to be a little depressing. This season is the antidote, my survey of solutions. This season is all about common knowledge, common in the sense of ordinary, ordinary knowledge held by ordinary people, ordinary things that people agree on, and common in the sense of communal, shared, held in community, as a public good. Is that kind of knowledge still possible? Knowledge that we all have, knowledge that we all agree upon? That feeling of holding an encyclopedia in your hands? It's priceless. Encyclopedias are very old. They've been around for thousands of years. For all but the last few centuries, they existed only in manuscript, copied by hand, and they were for scholars, a tiny number of philosophers. Encyclopedia Britannica had been first published in Scotland in 1768, a product of the Enlightenment, with its faith in education and reason and the diffusion of knowledge. Think of all the other projects that got started then. Libraries, public schools, self-government. All these years later, it's still called Encyclopedia Britannica. But really, it ought to be called Encyclopedia Americana. By the end of the 19th century, most of its sales were coming from the United States, where striving, self-made Americans really loved its democratic ethos, knowledge for all. Eventually, the company itself moved to the U.S. It's one thing to compile knowledge. It's another to spread it, to take that knowledge stored up in universities and make it common, make it ordinary. Britannica came up with a very American way of diffusing knowledge, peddling it house by house. This is the part that really fascinates me. Even before most Americans had telephones or electricity, you could get, in a way, hooked up to this huge network of information. Encyclopedia companies, though, they didn't invent this method of door-to-door sales. Bible salesmen did. The Bible runs as little as $49.95. And we have three plans on it. Cash, COD, and also they have a little Catholic on a plan. Which plan would be the best for you, the A, B, or C? It was awfully easy for selling encyclopedias to fit right into this niche, evangelical capitalism. In the 1920s and 1930s, Britannica was owned by Sears Roebuck, the department store company with a giant mail-order catalog. Sears trained a sales force that would grow to more than 2,000 strong to sell encyclopedias door-to-door. The house-to-house salesman symbolizes, in a way, the function of all salesmen, which is to bring goods or services to the attention of the consumer and to help the consumer buy. Like Bible salesmen, Britannica salesmen work from scripts. Mostly, they learn these scripts from each other and from the best salesmen. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Make sure things are rolling. We're rolling. They learned those scripts from Myron Taxman. That's him in an old Britannica training video. This is going to be our advanced door approach clinic for people working leads. Uh, I'm going to start out with giving the basic door approach, which is the company door approach. Does everybody here know the company door approach? Sure you do. Encyclopedia salesmen, like Bible salesmen, knocked on the doors of families they'd gotten leads on. A lead is the name or address or phone number of someone who might likely buy the stuff you're selling. Bible salesmen got their leads from church attendance lists. Britannica generated its leads 
from places like newspaper contests. One place Britannica generated leads was from a radio quiz show. I mean, think about it. What better way to find nerds than to invite people to submit questions to a quiz show? Wake up, America. Time to bombard a board of four experts with the toughest questions you can think of. That show was called Information, Please, and it was broadcast nationally from 1938 to 1951. And if your question stumps our board of experts, you receive a complete 24-volume set of the Encyclopedia Britannica. The show's title, Information, Please, was a reference to what you'd say back in the day when you picked up the telephone and wanted information. You could ask the operator for someone's phone number or the weather or the capital of Botswana. It was a very old version of Siri, a secular oracle. Anyway, Information, Please, the radio show? It was a blast. Now may I present our master of ceremonies, Mr. Clifton Fadiman. Clifton Fadiman, the quiz show's host, was the books editor of The New Yorker. He was also on the board of Encyclopedia Britannica. Gentlemen, we're off. I shall begin with the following question. Where does this line occur? Hey, non, nanny. Nanny, hey, nanny. It's in Shakespeare. I suppose it weren't. Then I'd lose. The premise of the radio quiz show was, if you submitted that question and no one on the panel answered it correctly, if you stumped the experts, you'd get a free Encyclopedia Britannica. But there was also a sneaky thing going on, because if you submitted a question and it never even got asked, I'm pretty sure that what you got was that your name would be sent to Encyclopedia Britannica and would be given to one of its salesmen as a lead. It'd be given to a salesman like Myron Taxman. Hi, Myron Taxman from Encyclopedia Britannica. Here's my business card. Someone in your family indicated an interest in our products, and I stopped by to go over them with you. May I step in? As I said, Myron Taxman was not your average salesman. He didn't just hook me. He hooked everybody. He was a star, and Britannica knew it. That's why they used him to train other salesmen. Myron Taxman is a family man. He's on the go. And he cares about other families like the Hewters. And I won a lot of awards for top salesman for the month and this and that. So I didn't really have to fight for the leads. They wanted to give me the leads. And give me is a misnomer because you had to buy these leads. So a lot of the leads were like $10 a lead. So who's getting paid for the leads? Britannica to help subsidize their advertising to make the leads. So then was it a little like Glen Gary, Glenn Ross, like fighting over the good leads? If you don't know about it, Glen Gary, Glen Ross is a play David Mamet wrote about real estate salesmen. It was later made into a movie starring a very young Alec Baldwin. Absolutely. A hundred percent. When I saw that, when I saw Glen Gary, Glen Ross, I said, wow, this is us. The leads are weak. Leads are weak. You're weak. Okay, I'm guessing there was less swearing at Encyclopedia Britannica, but still, a lead's a lead. Taxman, he'd get the leads buy the leads, and then he'd go out. He still had to find a way to make it in the door, though. In that training video he made, he laid out some rules of the road. Number one. Don't make the mistake of giving a price in the doorway. Don't do it. I'd rather walk away. Number two. Don't make a one-legged pitch. It's it's death in our business. Don't pitch the wife without the husband or the husband without the wife. The fuller the house, the better. Most of the selling happened, Taxman said when he first stepped through that doorway, across that threshold, and gave the warm-up. 
but it was good if you had the, the children there because then you could get them involved and and uh, and actually they would help with the sale. Generally speaking, it was the wife that wanted the books more than anyone because she'd be the one that would have to schlep the kids to the library all the time. And she'd oh, now I don't have to go to the library. I have, you know, the encyclopedias here. When Taxman had gathered the whole family together, not just the husband and the wife, but the kids too, he'd tell everyone where to sit. He didn't like sitting on the couch. That was too comfy. Too likely people would stop paying attention. The kitchen table was better. People were more alert, ready to do business. And then after we sat down, I would start uh, really schmoozing with them. Uh, Oh, you have such a lovely house. Uh, I was always a detective when I walked in the door and I would look around to see if I saw a trophy, a golf trophy or pictures of the kids playing football. And that really, to me, made the sale. There were years in the United States when encyclopedias sold like, honestly, you could sort of say they sold like encyclopedias because that, and not hotcakes, was the measure. Owning a Bible was a mark of faith, a testament. Owning a set of encyclopedias became a mark of aspiring to belong to a community of knowledge, a democracy of knowledge. But by the end of the 1960s, the door-to-door encyclopedia salesman had become a punchline. You can hear exactly how in this Monty Python sketch from 1969. I want to come in and steal a few things, madam. Are you an encyclopedia salesman? No, madam. I'm a burglar. I burgle people. I think you're an encyclopedia salesman. Oh, I'm not. Open the door. Let me in, please. If I let you in, you'll sell me encyclopedias. I won't, madam. I just want to come in, ransack the flat. Honestly? Promise? No encyclopedias? None at all. All right. Back in the U.S., it was getting to be no joke. Sales methods got so aggressive that in 1972, the Federal Trade Commission intervened, ordering Britannica to stop deceptive and aggressive sales tactics. Taxman told me this wasn't really fair, that Britannica was being punished for the sneaky methods of other companies. And I believed him. But then again, I am a sucker for Myron Taxman. And so were a lot of other people. After he'd got the family sitting down, at that kitchen table, not the couch. After he'd done his schmoozing about their golf game, the kids' hockey team, after all the warming up was done, he'd begin to close in on the deal. When do you know that you've you've got him? It's something, you know, it's, it's kind of an innate feeling. Uh, when they start uh, looking at one another and, oh, what do you think, honey? Oh, these look very nice. And uh... <laughs> They'd write the check right there for the first installment, $50 to start. Then they'd have to pay monthly with interest. Predatory? Yes. But still, an encyclopedia isn't, say, a stationary bicycle or some other useless thing you might get swindled into buying. People who grew up with these books talk about how the encyclopedia changed their lives. Like comedian Steve Harvey. When my mom and him finally got the money together to help us educate ourselves, they bought an encyclopedia set. Britannica. And everything you wanted to know was in that encyclopedia. And that's all you could know. If you want to look up something about elephant, and they had two pages on elephants, that was what your knew about an elephant. Harvey's not the only one. Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor had a thing for encyclopedias. She grew up in the Bronx. Her parents had moved there from Puerto Rico. After her father died when she was nine years old, her mother, Selena, who worked six days a week, saved up for Britannica. Oh, the most beautiful thing in the world. 
Now, the encyclopedias today are online. They're not selling them as books anymore. And I actually know there's some value sometimes to online reading, and I kind of like it. But I love the encyclopedias, the things I could feel in my hands and turn the pages. Sotomayor says Britannica more or less saved her life, opened the door to a world of knowledge. Myron Taxman believed that same thing. In my heart, I know anyone that would buy these books, even if it just melt, made them feel better, that they had this beautiful set of books on the shelf, and that was one source you could go to that you could find out about everything and anything that happened in the world. Britannica really was a kind of common knowledge. Knock, knock, it's a library. Tell me about caterpillars, capillaries, the Caspian Sea. It's all there. Established, verifiable, illustrated. A library that had taken years and years and thousands of people to create and produce. Look up Influenza and you'll find reliable, accurate information. Think about how hard it is now to find reliable and accurate information on the internet or in the thousands of years before the encyclopedia. Think of all the rumors and exaggerations and ignorance and misunderstanding and misinformation that characterize human communication across time and distance. I mean, Britannica was not a perfect solution by any means. For one thing, it wasn't free. Also, it wasn't public. Britannica commercialized and privatized a body of knowledge. Why bother to go to your local public library when you could own these books in your own home? Also, there was something missing. More on that after the break. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase, N.A. member, FDIC, 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. At Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry. But, but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories. Stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex 
of bugs. <laughs> Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers. And hopefully make you see the world anew. Radiolab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get your podcasts. My family never owned Encyclopedia Britannica. They're too expensive. We owned instead one of its many cheaper, down-market competitors, an encyclopedia set called World Book. My mother saved up for our World Book Encyclopedia set by collecting S&H green stamps, those little coupons you got whenever you bought gas or groceries. They worked like cash. You could trade them in to buy stuff. Of course, you know that you can get everything from color television to motorboats with S&H green stamps. But now, well, just look at this. You could buy Britannica with green stamps, too, but you needed a lot more stamps. Those World Book encyclopedias were about the nicest thing we owned. But my mother didn't trust us with them. They had to stay in the living room or on a special shelf. None of us kids was ever allowed to take them to our bedrooms. My mother was worried we'd lose them, or I guess maybe tear them, or I don't know actually what she was so worried about. But you can hear in the entries how different World Book was from Botanica. It was geared more towards kids than to college professors. Consider, just for one example, Britannica's entry for the topic of needles. The raw material of needle manufacture consists of Sheffield crucible steel drawn down into wire of suitable gauge. World Books Entry, written more for kids, starts this way. The next time you pick up a sewing needle, remember that this little piece of steel with a fine point at one end and an eye at the other has passed through the hands of 70 workmen and undergone 22 processes in its manufacture. Worldbook was smart to target kids. Britannica, with its lofty style and dense prose, was at risk of being left in the dust. But Britannica had a secret weapon for reaching kids. Britannica made educational films. In the 1960s and 1970s, Thomas G. Smith worked for Encyclopedia Britannica Films, which was really starting to take off. What happened was, in 1957, Sputnik was launched, and America was very embarrassed, and we felt we had fallen far behind the Soviets. The day Soviet scientists jauntily drop-kicked the first Sputnik around the world, the average American was shocked, bewildered, and resentful. Sputnik is a product of higher education, of instructors who teach much of the physics and mathematics in high school that we teach in college. After Sputnik, Congress passed the National Defense Education Act. It wanted American children to catch up, to close any knowledge gaps between the U.S. and the Soviets. All of a sudden, there was tons of money for educational films. Thomas Smith again. At Encyclopedia Britannica Films, which had sort of been a small company, suddenly got this big surgeons. They could practically sell the films for nothing. I mean, the, the schools would just buy them and the, and the federal government would pay for it. So suddenly they were producing a lot of films. It was kind of like the Myron Taxman pitch, but on a jumbo scale and fueled by the anxiety of the Cold War. Don't want your children to fall behind? Don't just buy encyclopedias. Fund the films. Our survival may depend on degrees and graduates we are not now equipped to produce. Unlike written encyclopedia entries, Britannica's films spoke to kids on a kid level. Smith was perfect for this job because he was learning to make films in real time as he went, and because he was young, not much older than his audience. When I first began, I was very inexperienced. 
I was in my early 20s, and I grew with experience longer I was there. And then I joined them as a writer. And uh, I wrote my first film for them, and uh, they had nobody to produce it. So I started working on it, and that, that was Food from the Sun. With a special camera, we can see that this bean sprout must push through the soil to grow. Smith shot part of the film in his basement. You don't learn all that much from these movies, nothing that would directly help you beat Soviet kids at math. What you get, I think, is a kind of curiosity about the world. How does that thing work? Why is it built that way? Where did this idea come from? A good teacher can use a film to promote discussion. That's the way they should be used. You see the film, then you talk about the subject. At least that's what we hoped. I think there were some teachers who would just run the film and go out and have a smoke. Yeah, right. <laughs> I had those teachers. <laughs> yeah, right. So here, let me just say thank you to every teacher who showed me a film or a film strip while they went out for a smoke or a cup of coffee or any kind of a much-deserved break. Sure, educational films can be dead boring, but sometimes that's reassuring. Sometimes the idea that, hey, here is a caterpillar, and here is how it turns into a butterfly. It's good stuff to know, and good stuff for kids to know grown-ups want them to know. There's beauty in the ordinary. The films are different from an encyclopedia entry. No reading required. Also, they're not the sum of human knowledge. They're invitations to knowledge. There's something democratic about this move, too. Not, here's the gospel of all known things, but here's a way to think. Here's how to consider. Here's a way to do an experiment. Here's how to inquire. Smith made Britannica films for more than a decade. One of his last is a film about the solar system. At this point, he was a master of the form. Also, maybe, just a little bit ready to stretch it. This last film of his, it was only 17 minutes long. But it takes you on a tour of the solar system through the blackness of space, past each planet, as if you were traveling in a spaceship. At night, the temperature becomes cold enough to make iron brittle as glass. In the black sky, we see the neighboring planet, Venus. That film proved to be Smith's ticket out of educational films. George Lucas, Star Wars George Lucas, saw Smith's solar system film and loved its special effects. Lucas hired him. Smith worked for years for Lucas's company, Industrial Light and Magic. He worked on E.T. and Poltergeist. On Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, he shrank the kids. We're all the size of boogers. So there it is, your historical throughline from Sputnik to Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. During the time that Smith worked for Britannica Films, his special effects were part of a bigger initiative, trying to keep Britannica up to date with the latest scientific discoveries. Britannica had been the leading encyclopedia company for centuries, but by the time Smith was making those films, a few problems had begun to crop up. Updating the encyclopedia had been a problem for a long time. Britannica had, in his earliest days, tried to publish new editions every few decades or so. But that got harder and harder. The worry always was that a new edition would be out of date by the time it was printed. It just took so long to produce. In 1938, Britannica had instituted a policy called continuous revision. That is, updating parts of the encyclopedia every year, instead of issuing a wholly new edition. In 1970, Warren Priest, Britannica's editor, said that the job had gotten pretty near impossible. It wasn't the only problem. It wasn't just that the world was getting more complex. 
was also that more voices were speaking out against the whole idea of the encyclopedia, objecting to the very enterprise of something like a one-stop shop for all knowledge. Britannica's editor, though, waved that criticism aside. Uh, we are a, essentially a Western, although a world encyclopedia, essentially a Western encyclopedia. Britannica really was very Western. It wasn't the sum of all human knowledge. It dropped its net only in one ocean of knowledge. Still, it kept trying to get bigger. In 1974, Britannica issued the first new edition in over 40 years, Britannica III. 28 volumes, more than 4,000 contributors from more than 100 countries. Putting it together had cost $32 million. It's the one encyclopedia your kids won't outgrow. New Britannica III, one size fits all. Britannica III had been reorganized. It was still limited, written mainly by white men, and mainly about the Western world. But it was bigger, and it was new, and it generated tons of sales. Myron Taxman, encyclopedia salesman, was thrilled. Oh, that was unbelievable, yeah. Did that, did that change your pitch? Did it bring in new business? It brought in a tremendous amount of new business because even people that had the old set wanted to get the new set. Just like, you know, you have an old car, you want to get the new car. And uh, yeah, that year we, we made a ton of money. It was a real easy sale. I mean, that was like shooting ducks. <laughs> and then, somewhat abruptly, the duck shooting era came to an end. Personal computers have arrived. And they're available now at Best Buy. In 1990, a set of Encyclopedia Britannica cost about $1,500. For that money, you could just about buy a computer, which likely came with some kind of an encyclopedia, as a CD-ROM. I asked Myron what he'd say when people told him they didn't need an encyclopedia because they were getting a computer. You know, there's nothing like having a book in your hand and that you could get the browsing factor when you're looking at something. And, and find other topics, and, and uh, this was the beauty of it. But it started getting harder and harder. Between 1990 and 1994, encyclopedia sales fell by half. Even Britannica's TV ads, featuring this super annoying teenager, couldn't save the business. My folks make sure I get a good breakfast. They got me a computer, a video camera, a compact disc player. But the problem is, Hardly any of this stuff can really help me with my schoolwork. There is something you could have which would help you a lot. It's the new Encyclopedia Britannica. Just call this toll-free number and we'll send you this free booklet telling you everything you need to know about your key to the information aid. In 1994, Britannica finally put all its content on CD-ROM, conceding to the information age. But that CD-ROM cost $1,200. You could get Microsoft CD-ROM Encyclopedia and Carta, for a fraction of that. Knowledge, it seemed, was getting cheaper and cheaper. At least cheaper to buy. It wasn't getting cheaper to produce. In 1996, Britannica laid off its entire door-to-door sales force. Taxman, who is undauntable, took it in stride. Put me out of business. I had four kids, <laughs> a couple in college. <laughs> Taxman became an insurance broker, and after a while, he retired and moved to Florida. Enjoyed himself. Britannica, for a while anyway, kept on printing encyclopedias. But 1996, that was the start of the Internet. And on the Internet, the sum of human knowledge would come knocking. The library that never closes, a whole different kind of door-to-door. Public, free, democratic, inclusive, interactive. But also, much more room for error and misinformation. 
knowledge on the internet could be faked. After the break, we'll jump to hyperspace. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member, FDIC, copyright 2024. J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. At Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry. But, but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories. Stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex. Of bugs. <laughs> Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers. And hopefully make you see the world anew. Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get your podcasts. It was incredible, unbelievably, blindingly thrilling in the 1990s to ponder all that the internet could do, might do. Link everything to everything else. Hyperlink, hyperspace, information moving at the speed of light. And it didn't take long for a few very clever people to figure out that you could use this thing, this World Wide Web, to create a bigger, better encyclopedia for everyone. All that promise and excitement, it led to a gazillion projects. Eager to add your expertise to an article on Wikipedia, the free online encyclopedia that's one of the world's most visited websites? Wikipedia is the one project that realized all that giddy, early promise of the internet. It's vast, it's open, it's free, and for the most part, it's reliable. Anyone can write an article, anyone can edit it. And so long as a subject clears a certain bar of notability, any person, place, thing, or phenomenon can get an entry. I looked up sewing needle on Wikipedia. The sewing needle, used for hand sewing, is a long, slender tool with a pointed tip at one end and a hole or eye to hold the sewing thread. This entry first appeared in 2004 and has been edited more than 300 times by more than 100 users, adding details and illustrations, repairing broken links, correcting facts. 
The next major breakthrough in needlemaking was the arrival of high-quality steelmaking technology from China in the 10th century, principally in Spain in the form of the Catalan furnace, which soon extended to produce reasonably high-quality steel in significant volumes. Wikipedia isn't just, say, Britannica online. Its history is totally different, and so is its relationship with the idea of the expert. The whole venture relies on a notion of community, a community of knowing. What's weird to me is that it came in a way out of the dice-throwing role-playing game Dungeons & Dragons. On the early internet, you could play Dungeons & Dragons like adventure games, together in what were known as MUDs, Multiple User Dungeons. This will be lost on you if you've never played D&D, but there is just a D&D vibe about Wikipedia. There's no denying it. Jimmy Wales played a lot of these games when he was in graduate school. Wales got very interested in how people navigated around the internet early on, which were with these things called web directories. Think of it like picking up your phone and asking the operator, information please, or like using the Yellow Pages, a telephone directory. In 1999, Wales started something called Newpedia, and he hired a guy named Larry Sanger as his editor-in-chief. Sanger was finishing a PhD in philosophy. In its first year, Newpedia posted about 20 articles, which is not a lot. That's because, unfortunately, their peer review process took forever. Also, Sanger was Newpedia's only regular employee. Everyone else was part-time or a volunteer. So then Sanger got the idea to use this pretty new thing, a wiki, which would allow editors to post changes directly. In 2001, Wikipedia was born. But in the end, it wasn't Sanger who became the face of this project. It was the guy who is still the face of Wikipedia, Jimmy Wales. Here he is explaining his role at a TED Talk in 2007. And then there's monarchy, and that's my role in the community. So I... uh... I was describing this in, uh, in Berlin once, and the next day in the newspaper, the, the headline said, I am the Queen of England. And that's not exactly what I said, but... Wales became king of Wikipedia because he and Sanger had a falling out. Sanger wanted Wikipedia to be mostly written by experts. And Sanger made the rules. One of which, as The Atlantic once pointed out, was that if an article could conceivably have gone in Britannica, it was encyclopedic and permitted. But if not, it was not encyclopedic and to be deleted. Wales, though, he disagreed. He told that TED crowd he didn't want Wikipedia to be like Britannica at all. In 1962, Charles Van Doren, who was later a senior editor at Britannica, said, the ideal encyclopedia should be radical. It should stop being safe. But if you know anything about the history of Britannica since 1962, it was anything but radical. Sanger was more or less forced out of Wikipedia. He went on to become a fairly ornery critic of it. He wrote a book arguing that Wikipedia needs experts. Originally, the notion was Wikipedia was going to be paired with another website called Newpedia, which was going to actually vet the articles and, and, uh, and post them as being expert approved. But that sort of approval process fell by the wayside and, and Wikipedia just went on, you know, all by itself. Wikipedia, in other words, had something of a rocky start. But then it started getting bigger, and it also started getting better. As of 2022, Wikipedia is the ninth most visited website in the United States and in the world. Britannica has a website, Britannica.com. It's way back somewhere in the 800s. Wikipedia exists in more than 300 languages. Each is a separate version. 
Britannica, not so much. Britannica, in the last print edition, has got 65,000 articles. Wikipedia, today, has got more than 6 million. Wikipedia is not perfect, but lately you won't hear a lot of arguments against the notion that Wikipedia is about the best thing on the internet. It's like what people say about democracy, that it's a terrible form of government, except for all the other ones. Wikipedia, a terrible encyclopedia, but except for all the other ones. You know, it's, it's that same kind of problem. Jessamine West is a librarian and a Wikipedia super editor. She's got the best vantage on what's great about Wikipedia and what's still tricky about it. Because, I mean, you know, think about democracy, right? Like, democracy slowly gets better, but it used to be women couldn't vote, people of color couldn't vote, and now they can. And is democracy fixed? No, but it's better. You know, and, and, and you still have to kind of fight for it all the time, and that's the struggle. Wikipedia relies on volunteer editors, which means it's only as good as the volunteers. Early on, a lot of the volunteers were guys who were online all the time, a certain sort of geek. So for a long time, for years, nearly everyone writing articles was a man, an English speaker, and white, just like the people who wrote the Encyclopedia Britannica, except maybe with fewer advanced degrees. And some of these Wikipedia guys were either creepy or juvenile or both. Not all of them, of course. But there were these crazy dark alleys where some guys wrote endless entries about stuff that interested really only them. Porn stars and Pokemon is essentially, you know, you want to see some really good Wikipedia pages? Look at those. These first-generation Wikipedians, like every Wikipedian, were also editors vetting new content, especially content posted by people who were new to Wikipedia. Editors are great. But these guys, they were not always great editors. Still, the editing eventually got a lot better. Also, Wikipedia developed new rules requiring citation. I think, really, the footnote saved Wikipedia. I once submitted an entry about a dead and long-forgotten poet. It took nearly a year for my submitted entry to clear all the editorial hurdles. I loved that. I was a new Wikipedian and hadn't been tried and tested yet. I loved that people all over the world fixed up my article, challenged my citations, and made it better. Jasmine West has been a Wikipedian for so long, and her articles are so good, that she earned a kind of promotion. You can get this weird little status that's called uh, what, what's called auto-patrolled, which means when you make an article, you write an article, you write an article from scratch, it doesn't have to go through a whole bunch of hoops before it's kind of live on Wikipedia and everybody can see it, um, which means that it doesn't go through what I see as the dude gauntlet of people who are like, this lady scientist isn't important. And you're like, your opinion, sir, may be the part here that isn't important. The dude gauntlet. That kind of thing raised a lot of questions about who was doing what on Wikipedia. Scholars started studying it quantitatively and concluded that over the first 10 years of Wikipedia, 1% of its contributors were responsible for nearly 80% of its content. But is that at all surprising? I don't think so. Wikipedia is so huge that to write good articles and make good edits, it's just going to make sense that a very tiny fraction of Wikipedia users are doing most of that work. That's not okay when that tiny fraction is the dude gauntlet, a group of people who have in common not that they are good editors, but that they are men. But what if that tiny fraction is a broadly diverse group of people? 
West is especially proud of a Wikipedia project called Women in Red. If there's a link that goes to somebody who's not in Wikipedia yet, it's a red link. And then once that link goes to an active page, it's blue. And so Women in Red is like, let's look at all these women who have red links and let's write articles about them. And it's a huge project. People are writing, you know, dozens of pages about women every day on Wikipedia. The way West thinks about Wikipedia, it's like, we're just in a sweet spot here in 2022 where this is actually working. For all the misinformation and insanity on Facebook and YouTube and TikTok and whatnot, Wikipedia, in this iteration anyway, is actually working. During the whole of the pandemic, for instance, it was just an incredibly reliable source of information about COVID. And I think mainly because it requires citation, because it favors reliable sources, because it's constantly updated, because it can be corrected. West is eloquent on the subject of embracing imperfection, of knowing that figuring out what's true and what's not is endless work. You can't take shortcuts. There's always going to be people who sort of crab about things. And I think you see that on any topic. And so some of it's just deciding about your outlook. Some of it's deciding how you want to get involved if it's a way that is useful for you. And some of it is, I think, the scales fall from your eyes, understanding that everything's imperfect. But if you can understand how a thing is imperfect, that allows you to make the corrections using your own human brain and your own human eyeballs to get the knowledge out of it that you want. A few years back, Jessamine West solved something known as the neckbeard hoax. Oh my God, I love this story so much. Online, citing Wikipedia, people started quoting something Louisa May Alcott had said, trash-talking Henry David Thoreau. Allegedly, Alcott had said to Ralph Waldo Emerson, Thoreau's neckbeard will most assuredly deflect amorous advances and preserve the man's virtue in perpetuity. So neckbeard, right? It's a derogatory term for, you know, a, a, a type of internet man uh, or internet beard haver, sorry, um, that, you know, you've got this weird kind of slobby beard and it probably implies a whole bunch of things about you is the, is the kind of internet zeitgeist about it. Um, and a lot of people would bolster their negative opinions of neckbeard havers by saying that um, Louisa May Alcott used to dish on Thoreau's neckbeard. They'd always provide some kind of a citation because they had to. I was like, well, that's kind of interesting. It doesn't seem, that sounds weird. And so I I looked, because it's Wikipedia, right? I was like, well, where does that fact come from? Drop down to the bottom. Comes from some 16 volume Emerson collection of letters. I was like, oh God, this is the worst. But I was like, okay, I bet I can find that online, probably. So she did what any good researcher, any good archivist, good librarian, good citizen would do. She tried to find a reliable, original source for this quote. She called up scholars, other archivists, other librarians, Emerson experts. No Alcott on Thoreau's neckbeard. Wherever she looked, she couldn't find it. I'm like, that's not there. So she went back to Wikipedia. And then I went looking to like who made that edit, which you can find, and what other edits they made. Like two or three kind of jokey BS edits like around the same time. And then they were never seen on Wikipedia again. And that quote 
was like an internet darling for years, years, because people love it, right? Because it reinforces feelings or stereotypes that they already have. And so I was just like, well, heck with this, went into the page, deleted that sentence, you know, wrote a little edit summary, which is another part of Wikipedia where you can tell why you did what you did. And I was like, this never happened. Never happened. So she corrected it. Defended the neckbeards. Wikipedia, in the end, is, I think, exactly what Encyclopedia Britannica wanted to be. At least at first. The perfect instrument of the Enlightenment, the universal diffusion of knowledge through the collective exercise of human reason and the enthusiasm for discovery, observation, discernment, and judgment. I asked Myron Taxman about it. Do you use Wikipedia? Oh, oh, constantly. As a matter of fact, I just gave them a donation. They're always, you know, I like Wikipedia, actually. I use Wikipedia constantly, too. And like Myron Taxman, full disclosure, I donate. I also worry it can't last because it does cost a lot to keep it going. Servers, people's labor, and yet it's still free. And so I worry it'll get screwed up because so much that involves so many people so often gets screwed up. But I'm grateful that, for now anyway, it's amazing. I learned on Wikipedia's Sewing Needle page that for centuries, Japan has celebrated something called the Festival of Broken Needles, Harikuyo, where people lay their broken needles to rest with thanks. According to Wikipedia's entry about it, Harikuyo began 400 years ago as a way for housekeepers and professional needleworkers to acknowledge their work over the past years and respect their tools. Practitioners went to Shinto shrines and Buddhist temples to thank their broken needles for their help and service. So I guess this episode, this whole season of The Last Archive, really, is a kind of festival of broken needles. My chance to say prayers of thanks for all the Wikipedians and their tools their facts and rules and sources and footnotes and talk pages and edit pages and prayers of thanks to everyone else who's doing this good work with their tools. Teachers, librarians, farmers, scientists stitching together with their needles the fabric of common knowledge. The Last Archive is written and hosted by me, Jill Lepore. It's produced by Sophie Crane, Ben Nadefhafri, and Lucy Sullivan. Our editors are Julia Barton and Sophie Crane, and our executive producer is Mia Lobel. Jake Gorski is our engineer. Fact-checking by Amy Gaines. Original music by Matthias Bossi and John Evans of Stellwagen Symphonet. Our research assistant is Mia Hazra. Our foolproof player is Robert Ricotta. Many of our sound effects are from Harry Jeanette Jr. and the Star Jeanette Foundation. The Last Archive is a production of Pushkin Industries. If you love this show, consider subscribing to Pushkin Plus, offering bonus content like The Last Archivist, a limited series just for subscribers, and ad-free listening across our network for $4.99 a month. Look for the Pushkin Plus channel on Apple Podcasts or at pushkin.fm. If you like the show, please remember to rate, share, and review. To find more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jill Lepore. 
The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Hi, Last Archive listeners. I want to tell you about another podcast to add to your queue, The Jordan Harbinger Show. Jordan's podcast is aimed at making you a better informed critical thinker so you can come to your own conclusions about what's happening in the world. He dives into the minds of fascinating people, from authors and activists to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. You might enjoy Jordan's interview with Yuval Noah Harari, the author of Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, or his recent deep dive into modern flat earth theory and why some still believe the earth is flat despite thousands of years of evidence to the contrary. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you'll find something useful you can apply to your own life in every episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show, whether it's asking for advice the right way or discovering a slight mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B-I-N-G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts.